Kevin, welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah. Okay. So, dude, tell us about East Wing, how it started and where it is today. Cool. So uh, East Wing is, uh, I'm an architect, right? Um, East Wing sort of evolved slowly over time. Obviously, I went, went to architecture school and I think, um, you know, that, that's kind of where it started. But I think like a lot of architects, um, I think a lot of architects when they're younger find themselves in this position where they're like, I like to draw, but I'm also, you know, maybe not an artist, but I, you know, I'm good at math. And for me, it was a lot about building. I've always liked sort of like tangible things, right? I think that that sort of becomes a reoccurring theme in my life. But growing up, I, um, you know, I would help, I grew up on a farm. I would help my dad like fix or build barns or sheds or stuff like that. So it was always super hands-on. And then um, just kind of found myself, you know, drawing floor plans or drawing sort of, you know, designing houses that are, or buildings that I, you know, in that way, um, not fully understanding architecture, but more just from maybe like a constructability standpoint. Um, and then during high school, you know, had uncles, you know, super blue collar upbringing, uncles that worked in construction. So I would work for them during the summers. And then that eventually transitioned into, you know, going to architecture school. Um, always had the, the um, it was always my intention to work for myself. Um, so if anything, I may have may have done that a little bit prematurely. But, um, you know, went to school, worked on and off, worked construction, worked in, you know, worked in office settings and then um, ended up working for one of my um my thesis advisors were my graduate professors is a big mentor of mine in DC right after grad school. Um, that was fairly short lived. It was sort of post recession and, and, um, you know, I was sort of the low man on the totem pole, but I took that opportunity, um, kind of saw it coming. I was already living in Baltimore anyway, and the commute was kind of killing me. So I knew I wanted to stay out of DC, but, um, realized that there was a lot of smaller, like sole proprietor architects, that had liquidated their, basically their production staff during the recession. So I started to kind of network and reach out to architects to be sort of a independent contractor, you know, draftsman or designer, whatever they needed. And at the same time, I was, um, I was touring a lot too. So it was kind of, that was sort of my first sort of like, you know, get, that's the last straight job I had. I was touring, running a record label, which you, you may have mentioned in, in the bio, but, um, Kind of did that, and then that eventually transitioned into my own company, um, which was Eastwing Design Build, which was a design. You know, essentially, I ran out of design clients and needed some revenue, so I had a you know I had a project where they were looking for a builder, and I was like, oh, I could do it. Um, so I kind of like made that up as I went along, and then eventually got licensed and started Eastwing, um, which has since grown into from you know just me in my back bedroom to uh, we have a, have a staff of six now, and we're in the office space, so. That's happened pretty quickly, but um, yeah, I would think it's it's almost like a straight trajectory from when I was probably you know ten or twelve years old to now. Um, I've always I've wanted to be an architect since I was I was young. It's super important to me. Yeah, well, and also it parallels punk in a lot of ways. It's like you know you put out your demo, you put out your seven inch, you put out your LP. Like the the way the business progressed really follows the way that like a band does absolutely in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, I did want to hit on something though. So what does East Wing do today? Cause like it's, is it design and build still? You do, you do both parts of it? No, we do no construction. So it's just pure, pure design architecture. Um, primarily our portfolio right now is primarily residential um, additions, renovations. We've got some, a couple of new build con, you know, projects in the works as well. And then we do a lot of um, like smaller commercial work, like hospitality bars and restaurants and cafes and things like that. Um, you know, 
and we're kind of moving into a commercial interiors world too, and multifamily is sort of the next step. It's exclusively architecture. Yeah. So for people who don't know you, where did you grow up? Cool. So I grew up in um, in Maryland uh, in a town called Emmitsburg, which is right below the Mason-Dixon line. So I was actually, you know, I was born in Pennsylvania, for example. Um, and I grew up on a, um, a dairy farm, a family dairy farm that um, I think my dad was maybe the fourth generation to operate this farm. My, my grandfather was born in the living room of the house I grew up in. So there's a super rich history there. My brother actually operates the farm now. Um, but, um, yeah, it's super small town. If anything, we were outside of the small town, like, you know, felt, felt very isolated, um, in a lot of ways, but also was, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I think it was a really, really unique way to grow up and, you know, I carry a lot of those lessons with me. Yeah. So like doing things like with your hands and like building things, planning things out, that was just part of how you grew up. Absolutely. I mean, it's like, um, there's, there's a real DIY element, but it's, it's sort of, it's, it's not, not so much romanticized as it is just a necessity, right? Something breaks, you fix it. So, um, I grew up, um, in a, in, it's kind of a jack of all trades again, out of necessity kind of environment where, you know, I, you know, the tractor breaks, you got to fix it. You know, the, the, the barn blows down, you got to build it back up kind of thing. And, um, so yeah, I grew up, um, you know, first job was, uh, feeding chickens where I, my, you know, my parents gave me a nickel and egg to collect eggs. I was probably seven years old. Um, and then you eventually start feeding calves. And then I started milking cows at like 13 years old. Um, Mike, who was in mindset, the band I was in has a, you know, has a lot of good stories about waiting for me to finish milking cows. So we could like go to the punk <laughs> show. So I think that that is like kind of a, I, I, I may be the only, only child that ever experienced that. So, um, so, but East Wing though is not your first business, right? You actually had a business when you were young. Can you tell us about it? I think the business you might be referring to is, uh, I don't know if I would loosely, I don't know if I would call it a business. Um, I've always been, I've always had ideas, uh, whether those ideas are profitable or not. It was not always my, <laughs> like my main focus, but, um, I had, a um, a fledgling mini zoo. It's called Ev's Emu Ranch. And, um, I think when I was like 12 or 13, my parents asked me what I wanted, uh, for my birthday. And I said, email. And uh, which is a large flightless bird native to Australia. <laughs> I mean, what 12 year old yeah. doesn't want that, right? right. I mean, and yeah. uh, they kind of like, I think that's kind of a cool little window into that world of like, kid wants an emu, like, why the hell not? So they like, you know, <laughs> like we had the space, you know, like, so we, um, you know, I, they just showed up on the back of a truck one day. And then, uh, you know, my, my dad and I built him a pen and then we eventually built him a larger pen and like a barn. And like, I think we, I, that was probably my first uh, merch experience too. We made, obviously made FZMU Ranch t-shirts with my name embroidered on it. I mean, we never made a penny, but um, that was, that was what I was into. So I, at one point. Would people pay to come and see no, these? No, absolutely these not. Things? No, I never made it. No, it wasn't. That wasn't the focus. Uh but, um, it was a not for profit. Yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. It was a, we were in service to the community, which was mostly yeah. like truck drivers driving to the farm being like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> All right. But beyond this, like, you know, growing up on the farm and, and starting uh, East Wing, you also played in anyone who, who's come to the podcast from the punk world knows the band that you played in, but for the uninitiated, uh, Evan played in a band that was hands down one of the most significant bands uh, of, of recent years in the punk and hardcore scene, which is a band called Mindset. How did you, growing up on a farm, end up getting into punk? And 
just as a bit of a precursor, a lot of people who get into punk, you know, they get into punk because they were like rejected, they were outcasts. And a lot of that also has to do with kind of having a broken family system. Um, from what I know about you, you're like one of the most like well-tempered, nice, comes from a nice family. Y'all like each other. So how did you end up in, in the punk scene? Yeah, no, my family is great, right? Like, um, I, and I would say when I, you know, when I was, you know, kind of discovered punk at like 15 or 16, I was like super well-adjusted too. Like I didn't, you know, high school, college, I got a little angsty actually, which is kind of, kind of weird to look back on. But in high school, I was like, you know, not an issue. I played sports, you know, um, I was a fairly, I would say, you know, happy person. Um, I think it was more about creativity, um, which this is, I don't know if I've ever really thought about this. So great question, but I think I felt a little bit, I was, I was sort of into art, but didn't really understand art, right? I was getting into architecture, but like, I didn't really, we weren't really going to museums or, you know, ex experiencing that. Um, so I think I liked the sort of creative freedom. Uh, and then it, I think it really appealed to like this sort of DIY sensibility of like, yeah, let's do it. Why the hell not? Like, you want to make a record? Like, how do you do that? I don't know. Let's figure it out. You know, it's like kind of this like nothing to lose thing. I mean, we actually had um, another not-for-profit business I did, which was we opened a venue in our barn, at the, which is like a barn that was built like 1911, right? It was a hay barn uh, that we we cleared out, we built a stage, we had a loft with sound, like a, you know, with a mixing equipment, you know, I don't even know anything about sound, but we had light, we had lights, we had a bar, we had a root beer bar. It was like an old bathtub full of ice and like IBC root beer that we bought from Sam's club. And we were doing, we, you know, we did free shows for a while that became a big thing in the community. And then eventually we would, you know, we'd have like, had like a Halloween show with like 400 people, which is like kind of insane to think about. Cause these were just like local rural like small town kids they weren't necessarily punk kids but i think for me it was a maybe this way to like create this world right it's like it is what you make it what you get out of it is what you put into it but the um how i found it was um really started to hang out with uh mike clark who we ended up starting mindset and a couple other kids from the high school that were just into it right so mike was into minor thread and rancid and gorilla biscuits and sort of this you know those kind of like sort of first layer, you know, punk and hardcore bands you get into. He was inspired by some older kids. And then eventually we just started, you know, that became my, my crowd. That, that was who I ran with. So um, that was my first experience with music, really. Like, I don't feel, but we didn't really listen to music growing up other than maybe sort of country radio, just kind of in the background 24 hours a day, like while you're milking cows or whatever. But, um, you know, making music, you know, um, playing music, you know, I, I wouldn't even consider myself a musician, but, um, it was just kind of a new world that I, I had never experienced. And it was so exciting to me and, and, you know, continues to be to this day. So I'm, I feel super grateful that I, you know, met Mike and, uh, you know, here we are again for the uninitiated. Tell us about mindset, the start and where it went. Cool. So mindset, I think mindset had a previous, uh, there was a band before that, it kind of evolved into mindset, which was called Anti-Wasteoids, which is a very <laughs> silly name for a band, but a, kind of a perfect name for like a, a band of a straight edge band from like a town of like, you know, 1500 people or whatever. Which is um, when when you and I met was during the Anti-Wasteoids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that was probably 2005, maybe mm -hmm. um, 2006. But um, 
when it when that band started, I was actually like their kind of roadie merch guy. You know, I designed their T-shirts and stuff like that. Um, I think I designed the anti-wasted CDs, probably. You know, that kind of thing. And then um, at some point, I think Mike was singing and playing guitar. I think I was probably a freshman in college at this point, and uh, he, you know, he wanted to move to guitar. I was like, give me a chance. Let's, you know. What, what do you got to lose? If I suck, just tell me. You know, that was probably how it went down. Like, if I stink, just be honest with me. And I guess I didn't stink. And uh, so then I think once I joined the band, I kind of put a lot of that, my sort of non-music energy into it from like a management sort of networking kind of, you know, perspective. And then um, there was sort of, you know, the other guys in the band who I, I, I love, you know, dearly and certainly contributed a significant amount. I think it was really kind of Mike and I's baby because we went through a couple of lineup changes, but he was sort of this, uh, you know, obviously the musical driver. And then I became this sort of maybe managerial driver. And then eventually kind of, you know, I I wrote the lyrics and stuff too. So, Um, but I always felt like it was very consistently a product of like all of our emotion and sort of angst or, you know, anger or even optimism that um, it always felt like, I was kind of a um, just sort of like a speaker for sort of everybody's collective idea, which was which was really interesting. And then we met you. We joined React Records, put out some records, played some cool shows, met a lot of cool people. And uh, yeah, it was one of the it really was an incredible experience, uh, really kind of defined basically the entire decade of my 20s. Yeah. You know, ever since I've known you, though, there's been no um, no pause like there was never like that sense that you didn't have a destination. You didn't know like, Hey, this is what my destination was. Like, it's not like you were like talking about the business that you run now, you know, 15 years ago, but there was always a sense of destination. And I think one of the special things about mindset is there was always a sense of being very finite. Like you knew that you were going to go off and do a career. Mike was going to go off and do a career. Chris was already in a career. Um, uh, Austin, uh, you know, has gone on to do lots and lots of music stuff. He's been much more involved in doing music. And then of course, Daniel's off, uh, doing turnstile, but for you and Mike specifically. And then of course with Chris, who already had a career, like there was like always a sense of like, Oh no, we're super into this band. We're going to give it all we have, but yeah, this isn't a forever thing. And what stood that stood out for me is like, you know, with creativity and people get that taste of living that creative life. It's like part of it is just cool being in a creative space, but also there's the, the, the taste of being up on stage and kind of people giving you that, that love and that respect and a person being in a community, uh, someone in a community mindset always had this sense of like, Nope, we're going to do it until this point. And you knew when to stop and you stopped at, I'd say it's like, you didn't, you hadn't started going down the hill yet. You were at your utter peak. Was that something you always just like knew or did it, you just kind of naturally progress? Like, did you know you were going to pull the plug at some point and be like, yeah, we're going to take it this far? Yeah. The, the end of the end of mindset was, was super calculated. Um, we had always, it, it had been a conversation even before we even, I think, picked up any sort of momentum uh, that we wanted to, to burn out, right? We wanted to go out on, at, at our peak and avoid, uh, you know, even plateauing, right? With, and I don't even know how you define that. It's not necessarily popularity. I think for us, it was about this sort of intensity, right? So I, I pretty clearly remember a time where it started, my relationship with the band started to change. And this is just me personally. I can't, I can't necessarily speak to the other guys, but 
I was changing as a person and the songs that I had written when I was younger, sort of in my early 20s, just didn't didn't have the same relevance to my life. And I didn't want to become sort of a, a, a karaoke band of a past life, right? So I think emotionally, I hit a point where I was like, I think I find myself moving beyond this. And I never wanted to sort of pantomime. I wanted to be so real. It was so emotionally real to me and intense and therapeutic and cathartic, right? Not only creatively, but emotionally, excuse me. But um, once I started to feel that, that's when the conversation started to become more real. Dan was, you know, Turnstile was blowing up, right? So, you know, it was really hard to get us all in the same room, let alone get a tour together. Um, it was like, th- this is starting to take a turn. Let's let's go out on top, right? So we, we booked like essentially, I think we had a six or seven month period where we did a weekend every, which was the most we could do, like every month. We did California, East Coast, Midwest, you know, Texas, Southeast. We went to Europe. Um, we sort of hit all these last spots that were, you know, meant so much to us, but but totally choreographed and calculated from that moment where it was like, this is turned. We're at risk of of moving backwards. Let's let's go out on top. Such a, I think, such a cool and special ending. A lot of that comes down to control, I think, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a kind of a just an interesting element of like, wanting to control that narrative or that destiny and Mm -hmm. which maybe is sort of a fear response of like, will we be forgotten or left behind? Or like, you know, if if we don't go super intense and, and, and do this the way we want to do it. So, well, I think anything worth doing is worth considering how it ends too, like really putting in some thought into how it ends. Like, you know, I've, you know, something like cadence, you know, I've got a lot of thoughts about how that ends. And when I started it, I wasn't like, Day one, I'm going to start a business. Day two, well, how is it going to end? Right. But as it was going along and I became more aware of it was a thing, like I was like, okay, what does it look like when I exit the business? What does it look like? Does the business keep going? Do I sell it? Do I give it to the people who are doing it? Do I actually, am I the kind of person who will retire? Would I be open to that? And as the business has gone on, I've become more and more firm, like understanding what I want from the future. I'm in a bit of a different place in my life now. I'm, you know, 40, I'm in my late 40s. But that idea that anything that's really worth pouring your life and your heart and your energy and your creativity to, it's it's important to understand it will end and and at least start having some idea how you want it to go so that you can have that sense yeah. of control. So it, you, yeah. it ends on your terms. Right. Yeah. Not. I mean, not there's you don't, you don't have that level of control with everything in life. So it's kind of totally. nice. Yeah. Well, but you've put yourself in that position. So let's go back. Like for you, leadership always just seemed like a natural thing. You know, you're a a leader in all settings. And I don't mean like a leader, like you have to get out in front and be like, everyone like follow me. You know, you're not that like loudest voice in the room. In fact, you're often the guy who's like a little quite quiet and you know, you're, you're a very humble guy, but you're clearly have a presence in a room and you're clearly a leader. When did that start for you? That's an interesting question as it pertains to the band, because in hindsight, I've thought about that a lot um, where I was, I was, I sang for the band, right? I wrote the lyrics and, and I think if people only knew me as the singer of mindset, as sort of a one dimensional entity, you would think I was like a, just a loud proselytizing, you know, like sort of preacher person, which I'm totally not. I think it sort of just tapped into a part of myself, you know, my wife would say it was, is my, my Leo rising or whatever. Right. So it's just like mindset forced me to sort of channel that element of myself. But yeah, I think I'm not like a loud, you know, 
super high energy guy, I don't think. But I was always like, um, I don't know, captain, you know, always captain of the soccer team or baseball team, you know, that kind of thing. I don't, I don't know if it was conscious. I think I just, I'm kind of comfortable in that position. Um, I like the challenge. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I can really, I, that might take a, a little bit more, but it's been natural to you. You're, yeah, you're a yeah, natural absolutely. leader. Yeah. So totally. like the, the way I look at things is you can have an ability at something which is natural or you can have a skill which is learned and both are like totally valuable. And I'll give you an example. Some people just have a, a level of natural athleticism and some people are skilled athletes and, uh, you know, everyone has some level of athleticism, whether it's like super low or super high. Uh, but not everyone who plays in like professional sports is a natural, has the same level of natural athleticism. There are people who are super crazy natural athletes who just never focused on it. Maybe they weren't passionate about it, whatever it was. It just wasn't what they followed. And there are some people who are professional um, uh, sports figures who like they didn't have the same level of natural athleticism, but they just worked harder than the next person. You're an interesting you're like an interesting cat because you're one of those people that has like a natural ability of leadership and you've honed it over time and you honed it, you know, in your business that you're running, you honed it playing in mindset, you honed it running react. And there's all these different types of leadership that you've been expressing. So I actually want to start delving into that and where the things you've learned and where you learned it. Okay. Yeah. I think I, I definitely honed it. I think that when you start to run a business, it, you have to sort of consciously hone that, right? It's part of, you know, it's part of the, the growth, right? You, this, uh, this man, this could have been 10 years ago. You said something to me one time that has stuck with me and it's about leadership, which is there are people who lead by fear and there are people who lead by respect. Um, and fear is an unsustainable leadership motivator. So that, I think reflecting on that, I, I, I think even with my team at East Wing, it's I want to give people like a level of control. I want people to feel ownership of the project. It's not that I don't want my my team to just feel like they're in you know subservience to me. I want them to be part of the bigger picture. That's super important to me. It's really about respect. But the more and more in my life, I think a lot of you know how I the lens through which I sort of perceive life or approach life is really empathy. Um, and I think that goes a long way in a, in a leadership capacity too, which is understanding people's goals, understanding people's fears and anxieties. Um, and as opposed to like, you know, just trying to force people into a certain position. So it certainly helps, um, you know, honestly make people feel valued, I think as well. But it, I think that level, a level of empathy helps you understand where people are coming from and then how you can best help them achieve a certain result, I would say. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think if you don't understand people, then you're not leading them, you're just managing them. Right. And there's a big difference. Like if you understand someone, you can really lead them because uh, you understand what they need, what they want, how, you know, what gaps they have that you can help them address, where they're strong, and you can kind of just let them run. Uh, if you don't understand people, then you're just managing them because you're just kind of, it's like shot in the dark. You're just dealing with the way they react to things and how they handle and you're, you're trying things. They're trying things. Understanding empathy is like the key, in my opinion, to leadership. But let's talk about like where you've learned some of your, your space for leadership. So like specifically growing up on the farm and growing up with like a close family unit and, and having those experiences there, what did you learn about leadership that you carry into East Wing today? That's part of who you are today. Good question. I think the there's an element of 
of sort of being a, you know, this kind of being a farm kid or whatever, which is there's this, this carries into DIY culture. I think this, and I think this truly carries into leadership too, of like, no one's going to solve the problem for you. Like you need to solve the problem. And I think that's my parents gave us, me and my siblings, a lot of independence to solve our own problems, right? It was like, you're, you're in a situation, you can figure this out, go figure it out, right? Which is sort of a like, push you out of the nest scenario, but it's also maybe a confidence builder of like, it's kind of a trial by fire. And if anything, I'm like, that's like my lifestyle, right? I'm like constantly in over my head and then I get a little taller and then I like go, you know, then the water level rises, right? So it's, it's, um, there's this element of like, you can figure this out because you have to figure this out. There's no other choice, right? You don't have this, you don't have the luxury of like not landing on your feet. Um, where I think, and I've had people tell me that like, you know, my mom actually will always say like, you, you always land on your feet. And it's like, yeah, I'm kind of working super hard at it, <laughs> you know, and I might've been on my back for a little bit too. But um, I think there was like a real, um, a real sort of stoicism in my family, especially with my father, which was sort of a quiet leadership. And it, which is, I think there was like a, a real element of like love, which I think came from respect and trust, right? Where it's not, um, there's sort of values being passed down a little quietly um, through um, through actions and not words, I would say. Um, and then that sort of sets, sets the example of like, you know, empathy, respect, love, um, you know, hard work, which I think, you know, I think really comes down to trust, trusting yourself, trusting, and then trusting the people around you. Yeah. Uh, what did you learn about leadership from playing a mindset, specifically mm. to playing a mindset? One of the elements that I've actually, I think I had a weird, not a weird shift, but uh, we can we can go into this a little bit too. But I think ending mindset was a, even though it was so planned and choreographed, felt a little, almost felt a little abrupt because it was my, it was my lifestyle. Even for a band that like we didn't tour six months a year, right? We weren't the most active band, but I worked on mindset every day for a, a decade. Like every day of my life, there was time devoted to to that band. And then to end that felt a little alien to me. I, but that's exact. East Wing started um, within three or four weeks after mindset ended. Again, super choreographed, right? Um, but I've learned... In, in ref, sort of reflecting on a band and a band that I think I feel confident saying was, was incredibly special, like incredible, like all like five unique individuals that were all had a very common goal that I've actually, one of my sort of goals in building a business is to create that condition, right? Like I never had any lack, like I knew that Dan, the drummer, Dan, Dan Fang, uh, you know, everybody knows Dan. I knew Dan would come in on beat, right? I knew, I knew like Austin was going to kill the, like the guitar part, right? Like I had this complete trust, which enabled me to do what I needed to do, which was like, what, you know, jump around and, and, you know, stage dive basically, which is kind of, kind of fun. Um, but it's like, we were just so firing on all cylinders and I didn't have to like, micromanage or observe or even even think it was so liberating once the band got to that point where I could just I could just do my thing because I had that trust that other guys were going to do the same thing and I had been in other little bit other sort of side project bands that didn't have that same level 
And it was almost shocking to me, like, oh, this is not, I thought all bands were like this, but mindset, I think, was just kind of a special thing. But hopefully that answers your question. I think, again, it comes down to this, like, trust aspect. Yeah. It, do, it does answer the question because it talks about so much about the importance of forming up your team the right way. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been in bands where everyone gets along, but there's, like, there's no spark. You know, right. it's like, yeah, hey, yeah, we all like each other, but it's just not a spark. You know, there's not that thing. I've been in bands where there's a spark, but there's like problems, like huge problems. Like you can bring it together to play on stage, but someone's a fucking asshole or a couple people are assholes and they're difficult to deal with. You put a bunch of energy into that. I've been in bands where everyone's like fucking cool and there's a spark and it's great. And I think like one of the things that I've really learned from punk and hardcore is like find the right combination of people where everyone everyone as best as you can it's not like cool like they're cool people but they're cool with each other they know how to be with each other and there's a spark if you can get that thing there's almost nothing you can't do and it's like that sense of like could i be in a tour van with this person for six weeks not just get along but also play killer shows and actually go home and write a great record if you can get that in a business, you will have the best business you could ever imagine. The market might not want your business, but the business in itself will be solid from like how you've built the team. And I, I've certainly learned that from punk and mindset, I think is like, if mindset was like a business, you know, like a, like a business business, like you guys would have, you know, been, been one of the best. And the thing that stood out to me about with mindset is that you did so much with so little because there were people who were in like school um, full time. Daniel was in like a bazillion bands all of them incredible out doing a bunch of stuff um chris had a serious job you were in school mike was in school so you couldn't go out and go on i think you guys did like one full north american tour right yeah just really just the one i think it was about two weeks yeah (laughs) so like the longest tour you guys ever did was like about two or three weeks right yeah yeah you did a ton with very little and when i say little like you didn't have a big label behind you pushing it you didn't have like um, a lot of time to tour. You really had to be smart with how you did things and you accomplished more than a ton of bands who go out and grind. So there was something very special about it, but it was also about how you guys came together and created it, but how the band was managed and not managed by you, by managed by the team, because like yeah. clearly it was kind of like your Mike's brainchild, but then everyone became kind of got to that same level, that final lineup that you had of people having real ownership in it. And what an yeah. incredible, uh, what an incredible story of like a, a band, but B like how to do something with a group of people. Again, brings me back to this trust element, but like building a team as that translates to business, those sort of lessons, right. Is that I'm, I've learned about myself. I think self-awareness goes a long way for a lot of people, right. Uh, especially as an architect, but I think just in life, I'm very big picture. I like big ideas, right. Like big concepts, you know, like I, I want the, the sort of big move. I want to hire people that are detail oriented, right? I don't want to hire a bunch of big idea people. I don't want a band full of bass players, right? <laughs> like, like I need a drummer and I need like a singer, right? So for me, I've like, I've, I've really learned to value bringing a team of people that do things better than me, right? That can, you know, that see things a different way or into different different things, you know, whether it's architecture wise, stylistically, or, you know, just different typologies and things like that. But, um, there's something really beautiful about that too, of it. You become like this, like a team, right? You got like face and BA Baracus and they all kind of do different things, but they come together and, uh, and, and the, the sum of the parts is, you know, is stronger for it. Yeah. What's interesting though, that I want to push on is like, we are like, Hey, there's trust. Like on stage, Daniel's going to come on on beat. Like Austin's going to kill it with the guitar parts and like have great stage presence. Like, you know, the parts, but any band 
or any business can hire people who are good at what they do. Like you can trust they're going to do, but they're not a good fit for the business. So like having super talented people who like you can trust to get the thing done, but maybe you don't trust them outside of the thing. So for example, like you play great on stage, but then you're in a van and they like, they, they hang their stinky socks up on the, on the loft or whatever, yeah. whatever, like super rude, inconsiderate thing. Yeah, totally. You take that into business. It's like, yeah, you can have experts, experts in your business, but they could be horrible. It's not just about the, the performance. It's about what people do around the performance. I think it's to the common goal. Yeah. It's everybody's sort of been invested in, in, in a common goal. Yeah, I, I refer to it as like a working alliance. So like, have you heard the term social contract? Yeah. So like, if I think of social contract, like I envision it kind of being an unspoken set of rules that everybody, you know, has basically agreed to. It's like our, our contract for how we get, get along. And a social contract has a lot of good parts to it. Like, a, you know, a lot of like, you know, hey, like don't spit in my face or like, you know, don't push over that person or whatever. But a social contract can have a lot of negative things like, you know, that one person in a group who's like a nightmare to deal with. But everyone's just kind of agreed. Well, we want the band to keep going. So we're going to deal with this person yeah. or, you know, all of the stuff. Social contracts can impact teams and work because it's like, you know, there's people who can get away with doing certain things, saying certain things, acting certain ways. And there could be griping or discussion about it, but it, there's never like the real out loud discussion as a group about it. And it keeps a system where some good things happen, but a lot of bad things happen too. Yeah. And sometimes really dark things. The thing that I always challenge companies is don't have a social contract, have a working alliance. And that I'm, I'm like ripping a little bit from therapy here. Like therapists always have um, the therapeutic alliance with their client where you essentially agree to how you're going to work together. And I always encourage groups to have a working alliance, but it's not like a, a big set of rules. It's like, hey, we aspire to act this way with each other. And you clearly map that out. But not in like some like, you know, big document that when I do this, this is like a roll. <laughs> it's like an old timey roll. It's not that. It's more like something really short and concise that's like, this is how we agree to work together. What I know about mindset, but also what I know about East Wing is I think you probably have a social contract that's like unspoken, but it's very close to like an ideal working alliance. And I think a lot of that has to do with how you've built the company. Yeah, I definitely, I, we, I could probably use a lot of things to be less unwritten <laughs> that's that's maybe that's something as i'm maturing as a business owner it's like oh you need to kind of write this stuff down and share with people and not just assume that they know um i think at, at least at this point i've maybe been able to establish that through just through my own sort of energy or personality or how i how i treat people um which is sort of you know maybe lays the groundwork i'm i'm sort of naturally bad at like documenting systems i just kind of do the thing you know um and having a team, that's a little more challenging to make sure everybody's on the same page. Well, let me, I, I want to speak to that though. Cause like you hit on something earlier that I, I meant to comment on. So, you know, you're, you're a big idea person and then you have a lot of people who come in and execute on ideas and like, kind of like those experts in it. They're, they're maybe stronger at you than parts, but you come up with the idea. And so this is what I call the visionary pragmatist uh, mix that a lot of businesses need to have a good mix between visionaries and pragmatists. And you want to have very few visionaries because you don't want to have like 10 people with like in these incredible ideas and then three people who are trying to execute on these ideas. Right. It's like you have, you have a few visionaries and then a ton of pragmatists. And the strongest teams I find is when you have one or two really killer visionaries 
a bunch of super strong pragmatists, but then a couple people in between who are kind of equally skilled at being visionaries and pragmatists. I'd say my big work that I've been doing in my life is to become a bit more pragmatic because I've been like very much like you. I'm like the idea guy, like we should do this thing. Like we should be like focusing on this, like leap and we'll land. And uh, I got a good piece of feedback from uh, Tammy, who's on my team. She was like, one of my hardest parts of my job is keeping you four inches off the ground. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, oh, if I didn't, if I didn't like intervene with your ideas, you'd be like four miles off the ground constantly. Like you'd be up in the stratosphere with all these crazy ideas that we'd never get to. Mm. I have to like constantly work to keep you four inches. And I want you to be elevated like that. Cause when you get elevated, it elevates all of us. It takes us there, but it's a lot of work. And uh, it was a good call out to me to really think like, Hey, you know, like it's cool to have great ideas, but if you're if you're just stuck in the idea, you're putting pressure on the system and you're not doing things like documenting and creating right. these pathways. So uh, as a business owner, I've been learning, I've been trying to become a little bit more of a mix between a visionary and pragmatist. And that's the work that I'm doing to, to get there. But yeah, like the visionary pragmatist mix in your life has been like evident because you are clearly like a visionary guy. And it sounds like it's played out uh, in, uh, in East Wing as well. As an architect, it's it's all about that that balance of vision vision visionary and pragmatist where my a big idea sketched on paper needs to be detailed in a way that can it can be built otherwise you're what would be called a paper architect which i'm very i'm not interested in being i want to build things i need to get things built and i think that's like I mean, it's what architects do, but like that's as a young architect, again, I sort of, I, you know, I had very few sort of straight jobs. I just kind of like, um, this comes up a lot. I think it's sort of a blessing and a curse. Like, I don't really know how firms operate. Like I have to, I like read books and like ask questions, but I'm kind of having to invent it. I'm inventing something that's existed for hundreds, you know, 200 years, um, just because of my own ignorance. Right. Um, so it's not only like how to draw the thing, because essentially what architects create are like instruction manuals, but it's how to build the team, right? And it's going from a design build, which uh, to an architect is like, I realized that when I was younger and a little cockier and a little naive, it was like, nobody can build this the way I can. It's my idea. And then I was like, shit, these, like, there's tons of people that can build this way better than me. And I can just focus on the idea. Um so it's like finding finding the right team to execute it, being able to communicate it to the client, make sure they have financing, making sure what I'm drawing they can afford, right? Like timelines, permitting, how to like schmooze with the lady downtown so she gives me my building permit, right, on time or ahead of schedule. Like that's the sort of pragmatic element that like without that, I'm just a, I'm just a paper architect, right? I just got a bunch of ideas in my sketchbook. And if it's, if it's not space, then like it's not architecture. It's just, just a sketch. All right, man. I, I have some questions about you that are, I think, a little tougher. Um, okay. What's something about you, just as a person and like a business person and a leader, that you've you identify that you didn't like or wasn't effective, and you've worked on it and you've been effective in changing it? Mm. There's there's a couple things that I think I would even argue maybe I haven't been effective in changing, but I'm working on. And one is like. I don't like to give people bad news and I, but it's my role to be realistic. Right. So one of the things I'm consciously trying to change as a service provider, right. Is like somebody that I perform a service for people, right. I take, I meet with them and I understand their problem and their goals. And I filter that through me to create space, to create a home, to create a place of business, to create an experience. Right. So 
I've, I've learned that I need to communicate more clearly up front what potential hazards or roadblocks or delays, et cetera, might be. Where I think when I was younger, I had this sort of like, don't, you don't worry about it. I'll figure it out. That's why you're paying me. But then when the permits delayed two weeks there and the clients freaking out because they thought they'd have it, like in my mind, it's like, oh, damn, like this permit could be delayed two months. Like, oh, I, sh- I should have crossed that bridge. Right. So I think that was sort of this upfront. And I don't think it's like a salesy thing, but it's just more of like a maybe it's like an op- blind optimism. So I think I've become a little more realistic. And then I, I do even find myself. um I often find myself now in a position as my projects get more complex and more serious where it's like, it's, I really have to be like, no, you need to call this client or you need to talk to this builder. Right. Like I, um, yeah, hopefully my clients aren't listening to this cause that's, that's kind of a bad quality, but like I am working on it, but I think nat- it's something that I'm naturally don't like to deliver bad news that uh, is just a reality of what I do. And I've found in, in sort of conversations with my clients and with my team that it's like, we just want you to be open about the communication, right? So um, that's that's sort of a you know, yeah. That, I mean, there's there's your answer. How are you working on it though? What are you doing? Um, I think part of it comes with experience and actually on being more well versed in what these issues may be before they arise, right? So it's like a um, as you know, again, I'm sort of in this position where the projects get continually larger and more complex and more expensive, and you know, there's um, as, as my portfolio grows and my network grows and things like that. So um, part of it is that sort of upfront uh, managing expectations um, so that when the sort of the bad thing happens, it's they're actually kind of prepared for it, right? So for example, one thing I'm doing is like restructuring my proposals to be more of an educational tool as well, as opposed to like, here's how I work and here's what it costs. It's Here's how I work and here's what it costs. And here's how, here's actually how the process works outside of me, right? Here's how construction works. Here's how you meet a contractor. Like here's, here's how permitting works, which is like, it doesn't work, right? Like (laughs) um, getting a permit is like a nightmare, right? Um, So it's, it's kind of that upfront educational aspect. And then it's also this like, you know, just, just kind of grin and bear it. It's like something happens and you know, it's, it's not even so much an ownership element. It's more of just like, I just, I would just prefer it wasn't happening, which is just not an option, right? Like people need to know when the thing is not working out, you know? Mm. Well, it's interesting because like one of the things that I, having known you for many years and worked with on you, with you on many projects, um, avoidance of tough conversations, uh, not tough conversations because you're really skilled in a tough conversation, but like anything where you feel like you're letting someone down or you haven't done something, I have noticed that that's been a thing that you've been avoidant of. And it's interesting that it's something you've worked on because like, it's one thing if you're doing it with like a bunch of hardcore bands and you, you know, there's friendships involved yeah. and people are a bit more forgiving. It's different when there's like a lot of money on the line and it's someone that you're, you're, you only know through being a service provider. So it's cool that you've identified that and worked on. This is very personal, a very personal question. I like, don't like to let people down. I think I like, I, I like to be a leader. I like to be the guy people can rely on and people can trust and feel like they can count on to get things done. So I think that's maybe the core of it is it's, and I don't think it's like a being exposed as, as a, as a weakness element. Right. Or I think it's more of like, and this goes you know, beyond business, right. To my personal relationships, you know, where this, you know, this person is trusting me and relying on me. 
and I wasn't able to execute to my standard. And I actually find myself struggling with my own standards a lot, which I think is um, at a certain point, it's like I'm letting, letting myself down. Yeah, man. And like, it, it, it's not a weakness. Like, I don't think it, it comes from a place of like love and respect and kindness. Um, where I've seen you kind of like back out of that kind of stuff is, is when you realize you might be letting someone down and then yeah. you're starting, you start to short circuit. Like, I don't know how, I don't know what to do here. And I don't want to, I don't want to hurt this person. Let me try and like hail Mary it and see if I can make it work. And, uh, I think it's cool. You're working on it, man. Cause like, it That's doesn't it. come from like, it's this hail Mary, Hail Mary, make it work element, which is this sort of like, like if you just put your head down and work hard enough, you can figure it out when sometimes you just need to talk to people. Totally, man. All right. I have a funny, what I find to be a funny story about you. And I'm interested how that's played out in your leadership. So you're, you've always been, uh, for me, like just a wonderful, honest, like totally like just a great guy to work with, but also like a guy who's like maybe confident in places, maybe too confident in places where he didn't quite know as much as he, as he needed to know, but you led with your confidence because you're super charismatic. And I remember working with you on two layouts. It was a mindset layout and it was a praise layout. And I was looking at this file and I was like, this file doesn't look right, Evan. Like I'm looking at it and you're like, no, it's just your computer and it's right. And I'm like, it's not Evan. Like I'm looking at this and I'm telling you, this looks crazy to me. And you're like, nope, it's totally fine. And you like started getting technical with me and I'm not for anyone listening. I am not a computer person. Like I can barely use my phone. So I was like, I was just going with my gut feeling. Yeah. And part of my gut feeling was you are such a decent human being, but you also don't know what you don't know, but you think you know what you don't know. And I was like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And so I sent it over to my friend, Bill, who works at equal vision and Bill, I love you, man. Bill, you're, you're awesome. And thank you so much. Just a shout out to Bill here. He, he did so shout much work. Yeah, he did so much free work for React for years just because he's a true hardcore person and he's great. But I sent it over to Bill and I was like, hey, like Evan doesn't know I'm sending this to you, but I'm going to send it over to you. I, I, tell me if this these files are screwed up. And he was like, oh, these files are so screwed up. Yeah. <laughs> and he went back and he worked with you on it. And it would have been a nightmare yeah. had I not put my foot down. And that was a long time was, ago. This specific was, well, hold example. on a second. Hold yeah. on a second. So it was, it was, it was leadership. I, it was something I was learning as a leader it was like, how do I be kind to my friend who I know is so creative and so smart and isn't, isn't trying to be a shitty actor here, but he's wrong. And I have to maintain our relationship and preserve your ego and not hurt you at all, but also create a scenario where it was like a learning moment for you. Yeah. And one of the things I loved was like, A, you're super charismatic, you're super smart, you know how to talk your, your way into something and you got over your skis. But when I, when I created the right kind of situation for you to learn from it, you totally learned from it, owned it. Your accountability was super high when you realized you were wrong and you didn't try and gloss it over. Okay. And there's a lot of people I've worked with um, who like, if you show them they're wrong, they're just like shitty about it. And they're like, they'll deny it or they'll lie about it or they'll blame other people. You totally owned it. But that the, the piece I want to hit on is like, have you addressed that ability to talk people into things or to come across like you know when maybe you actually don't know i think i have absolutely actually i actually feel really confident about that um maybe too confident maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, i know exactly what you're talking about i was like 20 at the time i had just gotten photoshop or whatever and i attempted to lay out a record and i think we might have run it past pete russo shout out to pete russo and he's like I had two different blacks, right? I had like a grayscale black and a CMYK black. And I didn't even know what CMYK was at the time. Again, this was like 15 years ago. Um, so, but yeah, 
I was blinded by my own confidence and maybe propped up by your ignorance of the situation, right? I was like, I know, he doesn't, I know more than this guy. Right. Um, but um, no, I, I found that uh, I think I'm, I've become, I'm very uh, open to collaboration. It's like a huge part of East Wing, right? Not only with my team, but like with other people. Like I love, I love input from, you know, the general contractor. I love input from engineers. I love I love working with interior designers, right? Like a lot of architects, you know, are feel like there's an ego thing, right? So I think if anything, as maybe I've gotten older, it's, yeah, maybe it comes down to ego, right? Like really sort of stripping down the ego, appreciating the value that everyone brings and that that can actually make the thing stronger, right? So I think for me, in, in my work, um, and, and essentially in my life too, I'm about the, the project, the good of the project, not about what makes me look better or whatever, right? So I think if that occurred now, right, I would be less, less resistant to uh, your criticism. But yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And uh, I had no, no idea what you were talking about. And I probably tried to play it off like I did. But yeah, shout out to Bill. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> what, I, what I love about that and like that situation... I always walked away like I, I walked away from that having uh, like a different kind of respect for you because it's one thing for someone to think they're right and to sell the idea, especially when the other person is like doesn't quite know. And I, I see this in business all the time and I'm sure you do, too. It's like someone has a level of expertise that's superior to the other person they're talking about. But the other person's like, I don't think this is right. And the other person just uses charisma or like data to kind of like knock the other person over yeah and you were definitely trying to do that in that moment but like when when i when i brought in someone else who had a different level of expertise you instantly rolled with it you got it and you learned from it and that's like it's such a huge thing for people to be able to learn like that and the reason i bring this up uh now is not to kind of like bust on you the the reason i'm bringing this up is like you said something earlier that i feel is like so important and it's actually really specific to punk where you're like Hey, the industry I'm in has existed for like forever, for so, all these years. I don't really know anything about it. I'm just creating my version of it. And I kind yeah. of didn't know how to build this business. I've just been doing what I think is right. To be able to do that and do it well, you have to be totally in touch with um, your ego and yeah. handling your ego the right way. And you're someone that I think is just so well based uh, or so well set up to do a business because you're so in touch with your ego. Tell us a little bit about though, about getting into that space where your ego, your ego um, started to fall behind the good of the project or the good of the business. Yeah. It's interesting to kind of draw a straight line between that poorly designed record layout and today, uh, which was like, I'm a designer, right? The difference between to me, uh, the difference between design and art is design has a client, right? Art is a little more, maybe a little more spontaneous or sort of exists in sort of another world. Design is a service, right? So there's kind of a funny side tangent of that, whereas like I was designing for my own band and my own record label. So I was the sort of creator and the client at the same time. But I think in a, you know, in the sort of world I'm in, in the career I'm in, and it's really my, my life's work, right? Like I, I am an architect that's incredibly valuable to me. It's not, I don't clock out at five o'clock, right? I'm in service to others, right? So my big idea that I love may not be the best solution for this person, right? I'm, I need to do something that's, it's not for me. I'm not 
paying for the space. I'm not experiencing the space every day, right? I certainly have my own elements and motifs and, you know, sort of big moves that I like, but it, it needs to be in service to the, to the project itself, which is essentially in service to people. Um, so I think maybe it's just, you know, we, I've, I've had a lot of clients over the last, you know, couple of years. And I think it's, it's, that's sort of the practice, right? Like that's the meditation of like, I'm sort of constantly presenting ideas that are then sort of one, I need to be able to communicate what that idea is, which is about understanding that's sort of that empathy, right? Of how people receive that information, but then really making sure I understand if it is truly of value to that person, right? Cause it's not about me. So I think in a lot of ways, my life has become about service to others. And it's, it's just sort of beyond me. Like I'm a, I'm a bit of a filter, I guess, is how I like to see it where I take sort of ideas and, and filter them into space. But, um, the, the architects actually have, I think, a, <laughs> the sort of cartoon architect is like an egomaniac, right? But that's architecture is, is, is a servitude to, to either a greater good to society or to, to an individual. Yeah, 100%. Um, so I have a few questions as we're getting close to the end. And one of them is really specific about the ability of punks to, to lead businesses. I think you had said like architecture as a, as a profession has been around for about 200 years. Is that correct? I mean, essentially longer, but yeah, I mean, yeah. you could, you could, you could say it's, you know, the, the second oldest profession, maybe. <laughs> right. There's a way of doing it or, or ways of building up your business, but you haven't really paid attention to those ways. Maybe you are a little bit more now, but when you started, you weren't like mapping your business off of other businesses. Is that right? Indirectly, probably, but only in the sense that I don't think anything exists in a vacuum, right? Like there's always, there's always sort of an inspiration for something, but like, I've definitely got to the point where I started to like reach out to other business owners or architects that I respected and be like, how that, how does this work? Like, what am I doing wrong or what am I doing right? Or like, what advice do you have? But I think essentially I just kind of jumped into the fire, if that's what you're asking. Yeah. Just like you jumped into the fire. You didn't have like a business plan. You weren't like, oh, here's this firm that I'm going to, I'm going to model my firm after. Here's this business plan that I have. You just went out and did it. Yeah. And then did it and did it and did it. And, you know, the water got higher. You got a little taller. The water got higher. You get a little taller. The way that I think about that is, um, the way hardcore bands do things. And I don't mean punk bands. I mean, hardcore bands. So like, you know, when you think about punk, even like there was a huge injection of like money into punk, like, you know, like kind of in the, when punk was coming up in the, in the seventies in England and people had like managers and major labels were involved and it ran differently, but it still ran quite a bit of the same way the music industry ran like singles, like promotions, like all that kind of stuff. I really feel it was like around when like, I guess like more like, punk as we know it like kind of like more like diy punk and then hardcore started where i think the idea of okay well like hey the rolling stones were a band and and i'm in a band right i don't know how they did it i'm just gonna i'm not even gonna pay attention how the rolling stones did i'm just gonna do it like this and you see like ian mckay and and jeff from like discord or like just they got money in a shoebox that they saved from teen idols they're like oh let's put up the let's put up the seven inch and there was like little to no modeling how to do things based yeah. on what had been done. It's like yeah. bands exist, music exists, radio exists. I don't really care about any of that. I'm just going to do it my own. We're just going to do it like this. And it's not even like an intentional rejection. It's like, oh, I'll just figure it out as I go along. It's a blissful ignorance, I think. Is yeah, I, actually, <laughs> I think it's a great, it, yeah. it's a blissful ignorance and an, intent, uh, uh, an intense willingness. Like yeah. it's those two things. And it sounds like, that was part of the formula with East Wing. 
Yeah, I mean, I th- I didn't want to work for anybody. Um, that I think a lot of entrepreneurs start that way, you know, for better or for worse. Um, I think I definitely had, yeah, it was just kind of like, why not me? Which is sort of a, a very like sort of hardcore thing. Like they got a record. I come out, why not me? I want a record. Like he could play guitar. I could, like why can't I, you know? Um, and I, I'm just sort of super into risk. <laughs> like Jill and I, my wife who owns her own business too, we kind of joke about that, that we just like kind of get off on, on the risk, you know? Um, hopefully it gets less risky over time. Well, the idea that I'm pushing on here is like how I think punks, uh, DIY uh, punks and like hardcore people are actually like really specifically well, they're really well formed to start businesses or to go into businesses and kind of like recreate those businesses and get better results because there is that kind of level of like almost like blissful ignorance. Like, I don't really know how the system works, but this is what yeah. we should do. And then yeah. the, the willingness to actually jump out and be like, oh, and, and I'll just do it. And it's part of why I wanted to have, have you on here is like mindset. It was like, literally, I, I don't, I don't just mean in punk and hardcore. I just mean in music. It was like, that's like those records, especially the LP are like, those are just, those are forever records. They're not think, records of a time. I think you're they're a little biased, records. but thank you. I am, but they're forever. I was just listening to mindset the other day. They're forever records, especially the LP. I think what you're doing with East wing is, I mean, obviously it's like a, it's, it's a firm within an industry, but it's like, it's unique because it's ran by a punk or a hardcore person. And there's something about that. Nothing's forever, but the market leaves for further generations is forever. And you did that with music. And I think you're doing that with East wing. And I do think punk and hardcore people are really well positioned to do that. And that's part of why I do this podcast and why I have people like you on here is like to encourage people to like, don't, you know, you don't have to drift. You don't have to be like a person in the rapids with no life jacket. Actually, why don't you get in the canoe or better yet? Why don't you be the river? And yeah. uh, sometimes you got to build the canoe while you're going down the river. <laughs> so kind of, just make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, any thoughts on that before we, before we head to, to the close? I know. I think that, I think that's a good summary. Yeah. All right, man. Last three questions. Okay. Where do you think today is a leader? You've got it. Like, of course you can keep growing. You can keep, you can keep, you know, developing where, where's somewhere where, you know, you're strong. Cause we already talked about where you still want to keep developing. Where do you know you're strong as a leader? I think it's the sort of empathy combined with the, the lack of ego is about is being, being interested and focused on collaboration and like respecting the strength that other people bring to, to the project any piece of advice that you could give to other leaders out there about like cultivating the right kind of culture on your team, what would it be? Mm. Not to be redundant, but I think it's sort of the answer to the first question, which is like um, sort of step outside yourself a little bit, you know, take a moment to appreciate the value that other people bring, embrace that value. And then I think, you know, foster and cultivate that value. And it, I think it's, again, the sort of sum of the parts is, you know, is greater than, than the individual parts. Okay. Uh, last question for you. You talked about that, like, you know, you love, you love risk, right? And you, you like that, like getting in water that's a little bit too high and then growing uh, and then, you know, doing it again and again. How do you keep healthy? Um, do I keep healthy? That's, that's the question. Um, how do I keep healthy? I think I'm still working on that. Um, I'm kind of constantly in, in position, you know, again, sort of constantly uh, with, with my head above water a little bit, which is part of the adventure. And, and, and I sort of, you know, I love it. Um, I kind of don't know any different. Um, 
I think it's important to kind of take time and re- take time and reflect a little bit. You see how far you've come, right? Um, like I, I now know what the difference between RGB and CMYK, unlike the record layout, <laughs> right? So like I learned something, you know, in the last fifteen years. But it's nice to kind of stop and you know take stock of how how far you've come and what you have learned, which is like a real. Um, with the kind of work I do too, I think you, you, you end up with these sort of tangible results of like, Oh, I would have this worked, but had I done it now, I would have done it differently. And like, that's okay. Right. It's, it's a practice, right. It's a lifelong career. So I think it's, for me, it's maybe taking time to reflect, but then also appreciating the, the journey that, that a, a creative practice or any kind of like career or life goal is right. So it's, um, really having a, a sort of, um, a broad um, sort of broad strokes approach and really understanding time in a, over the course of a lifetime, but then also sort of being able to look back and see how far we've come. Yeah. Heck yeah. All right. But what do you actually do to take care of yourself, man? Like just realistically, mm-hmm. like how do you stay in touch with your, like, how do you maintain, like, I know you have a, a great relationship with your wife. Uh, you've got a, a close uh, circle of friends, you've got your family, but like, how do you take ter- care of yourself? You have a huge amount of responsibility. You know, you're constantly hustling. You're constantly going. You've had to make some accommodations and like change some things in your life. But how are you taking care of yourself as a leader? Uh, I mean, I have found like as I've gotten a little bit older, I, I used to have a real problem with uh, just like not being productive. Right. Like if I were just sitting on the couch watching TV, I would feel like I was like missing out on an opportunity to develop something, right? To grow. So it's like I would watch a documentary and then be like, oh, I'm learning something, right? So like I constantly had to approach things um, through the lens of like productivity, right? Or, or like tangible growth. I think I've gotten better about sort of appreciating like just sort of quiet or like moments sort of removed from a larger goal. Um, I mean... I've gotten, I I take, I like to take long walks by myself is is one thing I really like to do. I mean, there's an actual thing I've gotten into beekeeping, which has been a really kind of a nice little meditation. Arguably there is sort of a productivity element to that, but I think it's like, it has nothing to do with my work. You know, it's sort of this like solo practice of like taking theory and then like hoping you don't get stung by like 50,000 stinging insects kind of thing. So there's like a little adventure in that too. But, um, I would say the answer to your question is like, maybe I could be taking care of myself a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I, well, I feel you, man. It's a, it's a discipline for all of us, but uh, Evan, this has been an incredible conversation. So as we're closing off, is there anything that you want to add in? Um, I mean, I would, I'd like to add that, uh, you know, I, I appreciate you, you know, this conversation, I've appreciated all of our conversations. You've been a huge uh, inspiration to me in my life. Big mentor of mine since, you know, I was probably, you know, 18, 19 years old. And I value that, uh, I value our friendship and that we're able to have this conversation. Cause I think, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we we're having very different conversations. Um, and, and I, I've really enjoyed how our relationship has grown and, um, yeah, I appreciate you, uh, doing what you do around. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, man. Um, so Evan, uh, as we're closing off, I love you. I'm super proud of you. I love what East Wing is doing. Where can people check out East Wing and uh, like all of your social and, and website and everything? Yes, yeah, so we have an Instagram at East Wing Architects. And then uh, eastwingarchitects.com is our website, which is in, you know, needs to be updated. But uh, the Instagram sort of has all the, all the live content. Um, so I think that that's probably the best place to start. 
Yeah. Okay, right on. And, and then everybody come, come to Baltimore and see some of our projects. Oh, uh, and everyone occasionally uh, they do a sick merch drop, so don't you know don't slip yeah, on that. True. Yeah, <laughs> all I right, can, everyone. I'm I'm just in business to make T-shirts. Really, that's all. My- <laughs> Well, I love that. Like you're this like serious, like business person at this point, but the hardcore person never, never quite goes away. You're still doing like sick t-shirts, which is like, I mean, that's what it's all about. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, man. Thank you so much. And everyone else I'll see you in the outro. Spencer, drop the beat.